Last weekend, I was down in Ames, Iowa with my wife and my oldest uh, child, my son, Graham. We were down watching a Texas Tech basketball game, uh, which I know none of you care about because, you know, this is, this is Minnesota. I almost said Wisconsin, but it's not. This is Minnesota. This is the Midwest, right? But it was awesome. We're big Texas Tech fans. Uh, my family and I are. I went to Texas Tech. That's where I met my beautiful bride. And so it was just such a great opportunity to, to go. And, and we love sports. We both do. We love the, you know, the, the competitiveness, the ability to uh, connect well with, you know, with athletes that are really trying their hardest to get better. I love watching coaches play as well. Coaches are just fantastic to, to see how they interact and all this. It's just such a fun thing for me. I just really enjoy sports. One of the things about sports that I enjoy perhaps the most, or one of the sports events that I enjoy the most, is the Olympics. Anybody else like the Olympics? A couple people? So Olympics basically happen every other year. This year they're happening in Tokyo uh, in 2020. This August is when it's going to be on. And, and the Olympics are fascinating to me. I think they're fascinating for a couple of reasons. Mostly, I think, because these athletes that are participating in the Olympics train so hard for so long, most of them in really obscure events, for like 10 seconds worth of a moment, and then it's done. Like, think about that. About how much work is put in for that. I know some of you are athletes in various sports. You were athletes in high school or perhaps in college. I mean, it takes a lot of work to be that good, to where you actually can go and perform at the highest level with the greatest in the entire world. And it's for a second. Imagine the pressure, right? Just put yourself in, this, in that place for a moment. Pretend like you're a sprinter, you know? Like your race is literally going to be done in like eight seconds. And you get up to the starting blocks and you put your feet in and all of the pressure rides on that moment. Like what happens if you cramp up? What happens if, you know, if you're actually out into a lead, what are you going to do? What happens if these other guys that you expect to beat are like in front of you? How, do you freak out? Do you, do you press a little harder? Are you giving it everything? So much pressure rides on that moment. I feel like it would be unbearable. Jesus had a moment that I think was kind of like that. He had a moment where everything was changing. Where for a brief moment... His past had been somewhat in the shadows. His past had been moving in secret, doing miracles on the sidelines. But then that moment finally came for him where he stood up, where he claimed his rightful role as Messiah, as king, as the ruler of the universe. And where the drama of redemption the story that we have as followers of Jesus really came to fruition. You see, without this moment, you and I, if you were a Christ follower, we would be lost without this. The stakes couldn't be higher on this moment, could they? And Jesus 
He approached this moment and he put his feet into the proverbial starting blocks. And he took his place as king. Now Jesus, this text that we're looking at today rather, there's a lot that leads up to it. There's a lot that needs to be unpacked to really understand the gravity of where we are. We're parachuting into right as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, the final week of his life. His public ministry has been about three years long. It was initiated when he was baptized by John the Baptist. That's found in Matthew chapter 3. And he, he kind of comes out of the middle of nowhere, and he's baptized, and then he comes out, and God from heaven looks down on him, and he says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus looking like a dove, and out of nowhere, this man begins a ministry that changes the course of history. Jesus is baptized, all these things happen, and man, then he starts to work. And he does some serious work. He starts by collecting followers, people that will take his message and continue to, to spread it. These are called disciples. That starts in Luke chapter 5, and he starts calling men and women to himself. But it doesn't just start, stop there, rather. He continues by teaching in a way that nobody had heard to this point. He's teaching with authority. He's teaching in a way that flies in the face a little bit of the religious establishment of his day. On top of that, he starts doing crazy stuff, like super crazy Beyond magic type stuff. He turns water into wine. He heals people of diseases. He raises people from the dead. And all of a sudden, there's a rumor about town that he might be more than just a normal person. He might be more than just a normal rabbi. Perhaps this is the guy that the Israelite people have looked forward to for so long. The guy that's going to set everything right. That's going to conquer the Romans. But the thing about Jesus is, through the majority of his ministry, through the first three years, he's pretty coy about who he is. He never really overtly says, yes, I am the guy you are looking for. He speaks in riddles. He speaks in secret. He says things that people don't understand. And even people that know him don't really know who he is. Is this the guy or is it not the guy? John the Baptist, the guy who baptized Jesus, a relative of Jesus no less, says this in Matthew 11. Starting at verse 2, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear Dead people are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Even though he says it, he doesn't really say it, does he? Now Jesus 
Because rumors are swelling around him, there's this desire that, hey, if this is really the guy, we want him to be the guy, right? We're ready for him to take the throne and and conquer. He creates a polarizing effect with people. Some people, they are healed by him. They see him do crazy stuff. They hear his teaching and it sets them free because that's what the truth does is it sets you free. And they get sold out to him. They say, Jesus is my guy. All right, I'm going to leave my job. I'm going to leave my family. I'm going to leave my home. And I'm going to follow this guy, even though he's not wealthy, even though he's not going to give me any power. All he does is teach the truth. And on one side, there are sold out followers of Jesus. But not everybody's in that boat, right? See, the truth sometimes is an irritant, too. And Jesus, he has no fear of people, man. He says it like it is. And so to the establishment, to the religious leaders, to those who are oppressing the people by instituting rules that can't be followed and using their power to abuse, Jesus is the ultimate irritant. And irritation grows into bitterness, and bitterness into hatred, and hatred into action, decisive action, a plan actually to kill this man. We'll get rid of him, is what they said. And all the while, the tension is building. What's going to happen? What's Jesus' next Move. It can't go on like this forever. And that's where we're parachuting in today. As Jesus finally plays his cards, he stands up and says, I am the Messiah. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the text together. Father God, thank you so much for this day. Lord, what an exciting thing that we get to, to view The initiation of the last lap of the story where you really conquered death, the ultimate enemy for us. Pray that you would be with us, that you would fill us with your wisdom and with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're going to be in Luke chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible, you've got a couple options. You can either follow along with me on the screens behind. You can grab a Bible from a purple chair. And by the way, you're welcome to keep that one if you'd like it. Or, what my favorite option is, is you can download one on your phone or other smart device. you got options, people. You just do what you want. We're going to start in verse 28 and read through verse 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives... He sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. 
They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is a pretty big deal. Jesus entering Jerusalem for the first time. In the course of his professional ministry, his three-year ministry, he has never entered Jerusalem like this. Now Jerusalem, there's a lot of significance to him entering this town for a couple of reasons. For one, Jerusalem was the central hub of religion, of culture, of politics in the Israelite nation. It was the place that a king would rule from. In fact, from the time of David all the way through the time of the kings, Jerusalem was the place that God resided, that God ruled from, and that those kings ruled from as well. He's finally saying it. I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. Now, the dominant idea of the day among most Israelite people, was that Jesus was going to come and be a conquering king. That he was going to come and he was going to overthrow the oppressive rule of the Romans. The Romans were the group of people that were oppressing the Israelite people. Uh, they had taken over hundreds of years earlier and they were vicious. They would kill people on a whim. They completely tried to destroy culture of places that they overthrew. They tried to make everything Roman. And so to the Jews, there was this desire that a Messiah would come and conquer these people. Take them out, man. Bang. There you go. And that's what the Jewish people wanted. In fact, even today, Jewish people that are Orthodox Jews that still believe that the Messiah is coming, so people that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah but believe that he's coming, still believe that this is going to be a conquering hero that comes to save them. In fact, in a BBC article, I found this this week. In the Messianic age, Jews will triumph over the enemies of Israel, leading to the destruction of weapons and people living in peace. That sounds pretty aggressive, right? The Jews are going to overthrow their oppressors. They're going to destroy. They're going to harm. They're going to bring peace through war. 
Even in the Old Testament, earlier in the Bible, there's hints toward a Messiah or a leader that would do this. In the book of Zechariah, which is in the Old Testament, written a few hundred years before Jesus, it says this, verse 3 of chapter 14, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. Pretty aggressive, right? And then this, in verse 9, The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord, and his name will be the only name. i got to be real with you. I can see why they thought it was going to be a conquering guy. Their expectations were, we're going to have peace in the way that we see peace. Our external enemies are going to be destroyed. However, they missed this truth that the greater enemy was not the Romans. That the greater enemy was the sin and the death that corrupted them. That corrupts all of us. So even though they expected Jesus to be this, even though there are rumors that he might be this, they're sitting there waiting for him to be this. Their expectations were not actually fulfilled. Verse 29 As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany, these are areas just outside of the city of Jerusalem. At the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. So basically what happens, Jesus is still in preparation mode. Tensions are high. Everybody's curious about what he's going to do. And he sends a couple of his trusted dudes out. And he said, this is, by the way, the Jeff paraphrase. He sends a couple dudes out, right? And he says, I need you to go get a colt for me that I'm going to ride into Jerusalem. Now, it might sound like an an insignificant detail that it was a cult that they were going to get. But there's actually a lot of meaning and a lot of symbolism underneath what was going on with this cult being what Jesus wrote in. For one thing, it was a fulfillment of prophecy from earlier in the Old Testament. Again, we're going back to Zechariah chapter 9. This was written about 500 years prior to Jesus, right? Like, I can barely guess what we're going to have for dinner tonight. This is 500 years ago. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Like, this is crazy. 500 years ahead of time, that is written. 500 years ago, the United States wasn't even a blip on the radar. In fact, in all honesty, 500 years ago, this continent had only been seen by Europeans for a couple years, for 20 years or so. 1492 is when Columbus landed in the Americas. 500 years ago. Imagine somebody saying that, and 500 years later it comes true. So in part, it's about Jesus fulfilling prophecy. But in addition to that, there's other symbolism at work here. Jesus walked everywhere he went prior to this moment. He was always walking alongside people, eye to eye, face to face with his people. 
What a beautiful illustration of God that he always wants to be right there with us, always present in the moment. But in this time, he takes a different approach. He assumes his role. Even though he's always humble, even though he's always lowly, in this moment he ascends into his rightful place. The idea of him riding a colt into town is significant too. Riding a horse would be the prominent predominant thing that people would do, conquering kings, they would ride a horse in because that's a symbol of victory in battle, right? You don't ride a little pony into battle. You ride a big old stallion. So I imagine like a big old white horse. But that's not what Jesus does. Again, his focus is not conquering the Romans. It's not conquering the physical enemy. Jesus is a bringer of peace, not a bringer of war. Not to the Romans, at least. So he brings himself in on a colt, on a donkey. This is a colt that's never been ridden before. He kind of feeds into this idea that he's divine, that he's noble, that he's worthy of riding in on this thing. And then I love this, too. It's a borrowed animal. Like, it's not even something that he owns. Even in the midst of his glorious entry in, he's still riding a borrowed animal. The stage is continuing to set. Everything that Jesus is doing is calculated, is specific, is intentional, but it is highly unexpected. People assume that he's going to be the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that people expected him to be. And honestly, not the Messiah a lot of people wanted him to be. Now let's get real for a second. God works this way all the time. He works this way all the time, subverting our expectations. We expect him to help us out in this area of our life. And he doesn't do it. He does it in a different way. We expect him to to help us get a job, a job that we want, that we desire. But he doesn't give it to us right away, does he? I know for me this week, As I was preparing the sermon, I was working on it, and I gotta be real, man, I had different expectations for what the way that we for the way this week was gonna go. My wife, she came in and she told me, she was like, hey man, God doesn't work according to your expectations. My wife's good at that. But isn't it true? We envision our lives going a certain way, marrying a certain person, having a certain job, making a certain amount of money, retiring at a certain age. Anybody resonate with that? And yet, even in the midst of God working in unexpected ways, it doesn't mean that he's not working. Right? Because he's always working. He's always massaging. He's always refining. He's always shaping us. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, we don't experience it in radical, crazy ways, he's always doing work. That's the way he's working in this moment. It's not what the Jewish people wanted. And it caused a lot of people to stumble, man. Because sometimes when we don't get what we want, we don't get what we expect, we go straight inside 
We go straight to being angry. Anybody else? Straight to being bitter. We blame. We detach. I know that's what I do. I start to detach. But if we just had a better perspective and understanding of what God's doing, how he's moving, we would see that he's not done yet. In this particular section, Jesus continues to display his power. He tells the disciples exactly what to do and exactly what's going to happen when they do it. He says, go down there, untie this colt. By the way, there's going to be a guy that says, what are you doing? And you're supposed to say, oh, by the way, the Lord needs it and it's all going to work out. That's kind of crazy, right, when you sit back and think about it. And yet that's exactly what happens. Do you ever think God's not in control? Even in the details of every word? Man, God is in control, guys. God is absolutely in control. Everything's ready. The moment is here. Verse 35. They brought it. They brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. He's finally taken off from the starting blocks. He's in the race. He's in the final lap of the redemption work that he started years earlier. From this point, we're going to see the reaction of three different groups of people. Again, when God shows up in unexpected ways, how is it that people react? Well, there's three ways that we see in this story. The first is with these disciples that lay down their cloaks. They're willing to say, you know what? I've seen you working, God. I've felt you working. I've experienced you in my life. And so I'm going to lay down my cloak in this very public, in this very open, visible way. This isn't actually all that weird. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we saw this happen before in the Old Testament. It says this, they quickly took off their cloaks and spread them under him. This is a new king. His name is Jehu. And then he blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. So it's not really that strange to, to take off your coat, to put it on the ground for an incoming king, but it is a huge statement. Not that strange, but a major statement. All my chips are now publicly in the corner of Jesus. And that's what these disciples did. And there was some major risk in doing this. Not only did you have the potential ridicule of your family, not only did you have the potential ridicule of your, your, your co-workers, not only did you risk all of these things, but then you have the Romans that are oppressing you. If they just felt like it, they could throw you up on a cross. They could kill you and not even blink an eye. But these disciples, they said, no, man, I'm in it. I'm in it for the long haul. I belong to Jesus. There was a man by the name of Nabil Qureshi. This is a picture of Nabil. Nabil was a fantastic young man who grew up in an Islamic Muslim household. His family loved him deeply, but was incredibly devout to their faith. 
Nabil had a a crazy interaction with Jesus while he was in undergrad school. He had plans to be a physician, to be incredibly wealthy and happy and and honoring to, to Muhammad and to Allah and to do all the things that a good Muslim boy would do until he had a crazy interaction with a Christian. A Christian who challenged him, who challenged his thought processes, who challenged what he believed about God. Over the course of several years, Nabil began to feel God stirring in his heart to the point that he had to make a decision. He had to lay his cloak on the ground or not. Now the thing that's crazy is for a Muslim family, for somebody to convert to being a Christian is really, really, really bad news. Like, your life would be nearly over if you did that. Your relationships would be severed. Your family would no longer talk to you. And that's exactly what happened to Nabil. He had to lay his cloak down and say, I'm either with Jesus or I am not with Jesus. In the same way, the disciples in this time... They had a lot of reasons to not do what they are doing. But Jesus meant too much to them for them to leave him alone. Their jobs didn't mean more. Their Netflix subscription didn't mean more. Their 20 hours a week of, of kids being in sports, trying to hope for that scholarship, none of that meant more to them than Jesus. And it showed. Verse 37, when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so this crowd of people, these disciples are gathering around him and they're cheering. They're yelling. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We found our man. We're ready. We're here. The text says that part of the reason that they felt so strongly that way is because of what they had experienced with Jesus. They had experienced his miracles. They had seen him working in a powerful way. But the crazy thing about that is it wasn't just the disciples that experienced Jesus working that way. Here's what I mean. Everybody knew about what Jesus was doing, not just his followers. Everybody had talked to a guy that had been lame before, and they clearly are watching him walk. Everybody had known about the lepers that are sitting outside of town, and all of a sudden you see them walking in and their skin is restored. You see, it's not enough just to experience the miraculous. Some of us have experienced the miraculous in life, healing and and God moving and God doing crazy stuff, right? It's not enough that that's the end point. There's got to be a decision to lay the cloak down. Not everybody was in that boat. Whether it was fear, maybe some of us are afraid. Whether it's inconvenience, whether it's just too much to ask. Some people, they just stood by the sidelines and said, well... I'll watch, but I'm going to keep my distance. I've heard of what Jesus has done, but I'm just not bought 
in all the way. Sometimes God does the incredible in our lives, but even in the midst of the miraculous, a decision to follow him is necessary, is part of the deal. Even Jesus alludes to this in John chapter 20. He says this, verse 29, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed, but, check this out, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Blessed are those who haven't seen the miraculous, but still have made their choice to put their cloak down for me. It's not just about the miraculous. It's about the day-to-day. It's about the decision to say, God, I'm in your corner. You're mine, and I am yours. That is so hard for us, isn't it? Even as people that are predominantly Christ followers, right? I suspect pretty much everybody in the room has, has put their chips in for Jesus. But if we really put them all in, we hold it on to other things. Or are we really at a place where we're ready to say yes all the way to Jesus? Our faith is too shallow sometimes in that way. Sometimes we're just too focused on our own stuff. What can God do for me? And that leads us to the second reaction, which is in verse 39. This is the reaction of the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if I keep, excuse me, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Like if they don't praise me, rocks will. Never seen a rock praise God. The Pharisees chose to rebuke Jesus. He was too offensive for them. He was too much. He disrupted their cozy lifestyle. He made them question how they spent their money. He made them question their use of power. That's not okay, is it? The Pharisees, they put their chips in themselves they said, no, 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 no. We, we love the law and we love learning and we love all these things. And, but we don't, we don't believe you're the guy, Jesus. Like, rebuke your disciples. Step down off of the colt. See, Jesus is offensive sometimes. Jesus is offensive. Even for some of us that know and love the Bible. Some of what Jesus said is hard for us too. That's a worry I have. That sometimes we're so caught up in the way we do church, the way we do things, the way we study, the lessons we learned in Awanas or whatever, that we miss out on Jesus, who all of it points to. My hope is that we are not people that rebuke Jesus, that condemn him from the outset like the Pharisees. Let's not be those people. Let's not fall into that cavern. The last one is probably the one that makes me the most sad. Starting in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. This is weird, right? A conquering king comes into town and he starts crying. Everybody's celebrating around him. He starts to cry. And he said, if you, Jerusalem, if you, 
even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. If only you had known that I was your king, that I was your Messiah. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and will encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is talking about the sacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, less than 50 years later. The Romans would overrun and completely annihilate the city of Jerusalem. This group of people are a people that just don't care. They just don't care. They're like, you know, Jesus is fine, whatever. But he doesn't impact my life. I like my job better. I like my toys. I like my cabin. I'm worried more about retirement than I am for Jesus. And their apathy turns into their demise. You see, Jesus does not want you to be apathetic. He talks in the book of Revelation later on in the New Testament about a church that is lukewarm, that's not bought in and not bought out, and he spits them out. He's like, I don't want you halfway. Be my people or don't, but don't fake it. He is weeping because of people that I think are like so many people in our culture. They go to church, you know, maybe a couple times a year, maybe more than that. Maybe they go a couple times a month. They're people that say, yeah, you know, like that Jesus stuff is cool. That, yeah, that means something to somebody. Jesus had some cool stuff to say, you know. But their heart's not in it. They don't really mean it. God doesn't transform their lives. They're not willing to cast their cloak down. What would other people think if they did that? What would their boss think if they were praying in the office? What would their friends think if they brought their Bible to dinner? What would their family think if they turned into this person who prays? They're apathetic. They just don't care. Oh, my heart breaks. Because this is so many people in our culture. Right? That are just on the fringes. That are there for the benefits. That are there for the fire insurance. Right? Has anybody heard that term before? The idea that, you know, if I just say yes to God, if I raise my hand when the pastor says to raise my hand then I'm just not going to go to hell. When that is so, so not the right reason to love and know and cherish and chase after God. Jesus wept over these people, even in the midst of his great victory. So the question then is, what's your reaction to Jesus? 
Are you the kind of person that is so worried about what your friends think that you're not willing to really go there with the Lord? Are you the kind of person that loves your hobbies more than Jesus? Are you the type of person that would rather turn on another Netflix show rather than go to a life group? That would rather think about fantasy football? Or are you the kind of person that's going to lay your cloak down? Laying your cloak down is not easy. It's not going to mean your road is simple, but it means that God will fulfill you, that he will work in you, that he will change you. And if you are today feeling God pulling at you a little bit, yanking at your heart, man, do something with that. I want to challenge you. If you're looking at this question and you're like, I do want to lay my cloak down, but I don't know how to do it, man, talk to somebody. At the end of the service, we will have people up here that are praying. Come up and tell them, say, I want to lay my cloak down. Help me. Write it on your connection card. Put it in the baskets as you leave. Come find me afterwards. There's no greater joy than helping to find a pathway for people to know Jesus better. It's just too important. How you view Jesus is just too important to leave him alone. It's too important to be anti. we got to be bought in people because it's worth it. Don't focus on other stuff. Focus on him. And he will satisfy you. He is the king. He is the triumphant Messiah going into Jerusalem. Let him come into your heart and just lay down that cloak. In a second, I'm going to pray. We've done this a few times over the last month or so. We're going to put a timer on the clock. We're going to put that question up there too. Are you going to lay your cloak down? And I want you to think about that. I want you to process it. Consider what it is that God's doing in you right now. And don't cast it to the side, man. That's so easy to do, to be like, oh, I feel something, but eh, I'd rather worry about Subway or, or Panera Bread. What am I going to eat for lunch, you know? Like, don't go there. Dwell in it. Let God change your heart. God, thank you so much for this day. Thank you, Lord, so much that, Lord, that you made a way for redemption to be possible and Lord that you've given us a chance to to lay our cloaks down before you to cast ourselves at your feet Lord I pray that you would work in this place that you would work in our hearts that you would touch us and move in us in ways that are new in me God start with me help me Lord that I might lay my cloak before you in every moment God, as we enter this time of reflection before we partake in communion, I pray that you would meet us here. In Jesus' name.